a lot of people think Americans are barbaric and that we're going to come in and just try and tell you what to do and how to do it and all this kind of stuff. And I, I totally took a different approach of just going to my teammates and asking them, how can I help? What is it that I can do? What is it that's needed? And when I was able to do that, um, then I was able to communicate with the coaches. Uh, if I didn't have one that spoke English, then I would talk to, I would bring my translator. But um, I needed to be on the same page with the people that I was going to be on the floor with first mm -hmm. and so I took that approach and it, it actually helped it, it actually helped me tremendously another season in the books the podcast featuring professional athletes who have taken their careers overseas we'll hear about their seasons come and gone the process, their struggles, and what it's been like living and playing overseas. We'll also talk academics and the differences between the European and the American systems. I'm your host, Leslie Knight, 12-year veteran in Europe's professional basketball leagues. Let's get to it. always be the best the best version of yourself because at the end of the day you are a walking brand and you're being watched and deter it determines you you are the determining factor of how you perceive mm -hmm. and I would tell them I was like listen you only get one first impression and perception is reality don't go overseas saying oh we don't do this at this place and I understand that you're in other people's culture and try to adapt to the things that they're doing Today we get to listen to one of basketball's all-time greats. She graduated from LSU in 2005, was drafted into the WNBA, became the Rookie of the Year, won a WNBA championship with the Phoenix Mercury in 2009, and in addition to her professional career in the US, she experienced quite a few years playing overseas in places like Israel, Russia, Poland, Turkey, France, and Spain. Tamika Johnson stands five feet, three inches tall, but not once did she let her height get in the way of her dreams. She played basketball at the highest level for many years. She became an author, and most recently, a high school coach. Wisdom, humility, and a silent confidence radiate from her voice. Listen close, because she's got some real gems to share with all of us. Hello, Meek. Welcome to the podcast, and thank you so much for carving out a little bit of time uh, to spend with us today. Uh, how are you doing from Baton Rouge? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Um, I appreciate being able to share a little bit of uh, my story, but I'm actually doing well. It's, uh, it's good to be around family and when I can, um, but it's good to be, it's good to finally be in my house. So you've been away from your house? Yes. Uh, my grandmother wasn't doing well. Um, uh. It didn't have anything to do with the virus or anything. It was just another illness. So I ended up leaving my house to go spend a lot of time with her. And I ended up staying there what was supposed to be three days for probably like over a month and a half or whatnot. Wow. So it's just good to be back. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Is she doing better? I'm hoping much better, much, much better. Uh, moving around, getting around. Um, and when she started yelling at me and fussing at me, I knew that she was getting right <laughs> back to her old self, right? <laughs> um, well, that's great that you were able to have the time with her. And um, I know she, you know, is a big part in your life. So um, I'm sure she was very appreciative of you uh, taking the time to be there with her. Um, 
But on on a different note, I also wanted to ask you, how has coronavirus kind of affected your life over the last at least two months now? Um, you know what? That's, it's not the same for me as it is for the normal person. You have to, I, I, I chunked it up as being overseas in America, to be honest. We've had a lot of time of isolation, making sure that we had communications and internet to be able to watch movies and TV and stuff like that. Uh, plus, I don't think I've ever really had this much downtime and I was able to get things done um, that I hadn't been able to do do some stuff around the house that I didn't have time or couldn't find time to do. Um, but more importantly, just to unwind and not have to think about the next thing that I had to do. So the isolation part was actually beneficial for me. Yeah. I've heard other people say that too. Um, just forcing you to slow down and not feel like you have to be there and be, you know, all these different places and all these different things for all these different people. And um, but it's interesting to hear you say that it kind of reminds you of just life overseas because it is true. I mean, I'm very used to not seeing my family or my friends on a day-to-day weekly basis. Um, I'm used to the whole talking through the screen thing. So you have a really good point there. Right. And when I first told one of my other team, they was like, I never thought about that. I was like, yo, we've had so much practice at this. Like you, none of us should have problems with it. It was like, you're right. I didn't think about it like that, but everybody kept asking me, was I boy? And I just kept saying no, but I ain't never put it into those perspectives. I was just like, yeah, man, we're overseas in America. Well, uh, getting into the interview a little bit here, I'm curious if you can remember and tell us what your first sports memory is. It would have to go back to when I was like five years old. I would mm-hmm. always be running around the house and playing with basketballs, bumping into walls just not the typical (laughs) girl that my mom (laughs) thought she had (laughs) um but that's when I began to start playing organized basketball and as fast as I am uh when I was five dribbling wasn't a part wasn't a deal you know I would catch the ball and just run and run fast and I would just (laughs) to the other end and I was going to score now of course the referee had to blow the whistle because that is a major travel Uh but um it didn't bother me. I I just had fun and I knew right then and there that I enjoyed playing the game of basketball. Right. I think that's a common thread when we watch little kids play, you know, it's like, pick it up, run five steps. Okay. Pass, you know, <laughs> right. Um, but, uh, so when did you grow up in a sport minded family? I grew up in a competitive family, but my mom and dad both played, um, basketball. Mom played basketball, volleyball, ran track and played softball. Okay. My dad was a basketball player. My uncles were all engaged in some type of sport. So I guess you can say that I am a, uh, from a sports family, but more than anything, I'm from a competitive family. It didn't matter what game was being played. It could be checkers. It could be chess. Any game that we made up, we were going to be competitive in it. So um, I think uh-huh. it just was instilled in me in an early age. How many brothers and sisters do you have? Three brothers and three sisters. Okay. So yeah, lots of young uh, children wanting to be the best and, um, you know, then have bragging rights, basically. (laughs) Even though I'm the oldest and I was a little bit more stronger for a long time, I kind of won that battle for years and then I left. So I pretty much still have that crown (laughs) because I had to leave. I got opportunity to leave and then go off to college. And it's been a long time since we've all been around each other in that capacity since. So I'm 
I'm pretty much still holding that crown. Okay, <laughs> good to know. Um, so, okay, you started when you're around five, but when would you say you really started taking it um, more seriously? I would say about really between eight and 10 because it became a focal point for not just me, um, but also for one of my uncles who was at everything for me. Um, in the neighborhood that I grew up in, basketball was kind of like a safe haven and it kept me out of trouble. So I would spend a lot of time, a lot of time in the gym and my uncle would be right there with me. So it, I became very serious uh, about it between uh, that time because in the neighborhood, eight or 10 is kind of like beyond years of the normal eight and 10 year old. So um, yeah, I, knew, yeah. I knew then that uh, I didn't want to be like the things that I saw. And I felt that there was more to the game that I needed to learn. So I started focusing more and more on it. You know, this little eight-year-old, 10-year-old eventually develops into a very, very talented uh, point guard. Um, when you were in your last couple of years of high school, your senior year, junior year, um, how did the whole recruiting process kind of pan out for you? And how did you decide on going to LSU? Um, the recruiting process was uh, interesting, but it was also a bit of a headache <laughs> because I was just, I just love the game of basketball and the phone calls and the, the waking, some, you know, they want to be the first one to call. Mm-hmm. And in high school, you try to sleep in. <laughs> As much as, you know, your parents would allow you to sleep in without having to get up and do anything. Uh, so the phone call started early. Um, but once I started connecting with the people and understanding that um, my love for the game caught the eyes of many different coaches, it was actually pretty cool. Um, I'll tell you, I ended up going to LSU. But before I committed to LSU, I was actually going to Louisiana Tech. Oh, Yes, I was going to go and be a lady texter. Um, Kim Mulkey was there and stuff like that. And I had been in constant communication with Kim for a while. And my visit, on the day of my visit, Kim quit that day. And I was like, wait, hold up. He's the person that I've been talking to the most. And I was torn between um, Louisiana Tech and LSU, but I was leaning more towards Louisiana Tech. And when that happened, I was like, okay, that just made my decision a lot easier. And the crazy part was that my grandmother, who passed the, the grandmother that, that raised me, who passed away, she had a great relationship with both uh, Coach Malky and Coach Gunner. So I was kind of like torn between the two because what they did, they recruited my grandmother before they recruited me. So right, <laughs> smart. And she, <laughs> and she wouldn't like make a decision for me. So it's like, nope, you're gonna have to make this decision yourself. Um, I can tell you how I feel about both, and this is what that ultimately is going to be your decision. So um, when Kim left, it kind of made the decision a lot easier for me. And I'm thankful um, to have been able to learn from Coach Gunner and gain yeah. it as I did from her. Looking back, you know, now that you're older, you're probably, you probably understand it, and, you know, people have to do what's best for them. But as a 18-year-old high school student, that must have been really hard because you've been recruited by this person for so long, and you're thinking about going there, and all of a sudden they're just gone. But that's kind right. of the college. I don't want to say that's the name of the game, but people move around constantly. They do. Absolutely. Um, and you're right. At first I was like, 
what's going on? Is somebody going to tell me where Kim is? And I asked Leon Barmore, uh, Coach Barmore, a lot of questions. And I was like, where is Kim? And he was like, if you let me get through this weekend, um, I promise you we'll talk before you leave. And I respected it. And he was 100% honest with me. And I'll be honest with you, I understood it then um, that things took place that wasn't in her favor. And she had to make a better, she had to make a decision that was best for her and mm-hmm. and her family, like you said. And as I got older, I I for sure understood understood it more. Um, and you know, still follow it to this day and always wish her the best. Mm-hmm. Well, LSU turned out to be, you know, a pretty dis- decent place for you to go, I'd say. <laughs> Absolutely. Fun times with some phenomenal talent and uh Great coaching, Coach Gunner. Tell me about the transition from going from high school to college and just how that was on the court and off the court. Um, maybe what do you, what were some of the difficult aspects of that transition for you? <laughs> uh, the conditioning. <laughs> <laughs> Amen to that. <laughs> the conditioning part, like in high school, it was cool. Your coach ran you, but it wasn't to the magnitude of what we did when we were in college uh also the accountability um i thought that i held myself to a high standard of accountability accountability but um on that level um and transforming into one of the leaders the accountability became very uh, much higher um and when, I'm you thinking- say, when you say accountability do you just mean like bringing it every day at practice do you mean being on time wearing the right clothes um you know wearing the right clothes making sure you have on the proper attire making sure that you're in class at the time that you need to be um making sure for sure on time god i i get nervous and start sweating now as an adult if i'm about to be late for anything um just making sure that we are together as one making sure that we're all on the same page and uh, making sure that we do everything that we need to do to keep it and hold it together. I think that part was on a broader scale when we got to college. It was one thing when you're in high school um, because somebody else's parents was going to pick them up and we were only going to be, we were at school all day. We had practice and then everybody go home. Now at college, everybody's going back to the dorm. Uh, There's not very many, there's not parents involved in that aspect. Um, and we have to make sure the things that we learn from home that we're able to instill. I mean, they're they're instilled in us, and we're able to show them as well as the things that we will learn that we learn uh, in college. So uh, the accountability thing was um, was a big thing, but it was good for me because it, it allowed me to have more more structure and more discipline. Did you feel that from your freshman year on, or was that something that you- <laughs> my freshman year I wanted to go home? No. <laughs> I was like, these people are nuts. <laughs> um, but then as, also I had to get thrown in the fire um, because uh, the, the girl, the point guard, I'll never forget us. We still talk to this day. Keisha James was in front of me and I had to start um, a little later due to um, ACT. And she goes down my first game. I go from playing two minutes, next game, 20 minutes, my third game, 40 minutes. Because the the point guard in front of me um, got injured. Oh, man. And you talk about going from a size, I don't know, maybe nine to a size four. When I went home, my grandmother was like, are you eating? What is going on with you? She's like, do I need to call those coaches? Are are they feeding you up there? (laughs) I promise you, 
I eat more than you know. We just run a lot. <laughs> and they uh -huh. couldn't understand it at all because I came back so small. But I uh, I was just like, y'all don't understand. Man. Like, I, I miss y'all so much. And this is this, blah, blah, blah. But leaving that and going back home and seeing how much I had changed in that, that little small window, um, that's when I became okay with being away. But the first Leslie, you know, the first couple of months, I was like, no, ma'am, I'm ready to go home. <laughs> How many hours is it from your hometown to LSU? It's only like an hour and some change, which is absolutely great. But the crazy thing about it is how our, our college schedule was so structured and we had to do this and this. And I, was, I never really got to go home. Yeah. No, I, my parents live like 25 minutes maybe from the University of Minnesota and I never went home. Wow. <laughs> right. I, didn't, I mean, I didn't have a car either. You know, that kind of played. They came and visited, but yeah, you're just, you're, like you said, your schedule is just, you have something constantly. Right. Um, okay. So, and then what about the transition in school? I mean, how was that balancing all these new classes, um, early morning workouts, then going to class, study hall? Uh, maintaining your minimum GPA so that you can play in practice? Well, I had, a, um, because I was a prop 48. I was a hundred tenth of a point away from passing my ACT. So I had to sit out. And for me, school was, became very important to me. And it's crazy because basketball was taken away from me for a little while. Hmm. And so it allowed me to put things into perspective. And I had something to prove because I would, I was, it was so many naysayers that saying that I couldn't make it. I wasn't smart enough to go to LSU. I was too small to be there and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, I'm a true competitor. So don't ever try to challenge me, especially if you've never walked in my shoes to begin with. So I took, uh, I took the approach of proving that I belonged and you know, that I wasn't as dumb as people thought I was. So, um, I hit the ground running with the school and I, my GPA was well, above I had like over I had like a three five um or something I know for my first year when I first got in there and it was it just kept going from there and plus coach Gunner didn't play <laughs> meaning you guys were going to class you were coming to practice people were kind of I don't know watching we had coaches sometimes come and show up at class just to make sure we were there Listen, we had like, if we, first of all, you know, LSU is a football school. So most of the athletes have classes together. Well, football players had to sign in when they walked through the door. Did they? And so they would, they would have somebody to check classes where well, they're checking football players. Then, you know, the basketball players are in there, women's basketball, track and all this. So yes, there were classroom checks. Wow. It was, it was no missing at all. And if it's reported that you're missing, you can cancel Christmas because it's going to be <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know we had some, um, what do you want to call it? Like, uh, extra workouts due to people missing class, um, kind of like a punishment type thing. And, uh, yeah, that was not fun on top of everything else that you were already having to do. Right. It, and I think it went across the board. The whole NCAA ran for somebody else <laughs> not going to class. And, and I'm like, are you kidding me? Yep. But you no. learn how to hold people accountable, right? When you know that you're going to have to run or do a bike workout or whatnot. Yeah, exactly. Um, like, especially if you're in the same class with somebody. Oh, no. Get up. Let's go. We got class. today. <laughs> We're not running for you today. You're not sleeping in. Let's go. Uh huh. Um, well, that discipline and, uh, you know, the seriousness of your program paid off. Uh, we don't have time to talk about all of your 
awards and accolades and whatnot. But I mean, you went to two final fours. Um, you know, unfortunately you didn't make the next step, but what was it like playing on that national stage? I mean, it was awesome to be honest. Um, just to get the feel of it, that the atmosphere, the, um, the environment, to know that you're playing for uh, something bigger. And it was the first time that the school had did it. So um, to be a part of that history uh, with all the other history that we were able to accomplish there, um, it was a, it was a really good thing. And to be a part of starting a final four run and knowing that they went four years after that uh, was a great feeling also. Yeah. I mean, I cannot even imagine uh, what that whole experience is like. You know, the farthest we got was my freshman year to the Sweet 16, but I didn't play at all. You know, so I felt like I was a part of it, but not really because I really didn't play. Um, but it was still really neat. It was just magical. You know, just that feeling in the air, that energy, all your fans are there. Um, it's something that European basketball, well, I don't know. You've played in a lot of places, but mm-hmm. it's something that they don't really know about. I mean... I don't know if you can really compare it to anything overseas unless you play in like a Euro league championship game or something like that. I don't know. Yes. Um, to a certain degree. Yes. But I know in Turkey, um, Russia, like you say, Euro league, uh, Euro, uh, Euro cup, uh, they do tend to get behind it and, um, the fans are nuts, but it's nothing like the, the college atmosphere with, um, you know, the 64 that make it and the brackets and stuff like that. That's just a different feeling. Right. And, it's, um, and it's one that I hope everybody, every athlete at, at some point gets to experience because it's, it's definitely, it's definitely levels to it. And uh, ultimately it's a great, great experience. Yeah. I felt so bad for all the athletes this year that weren't able to go to the NCAA tournament. You know, I mean, it happened worldwide, right? NBA, WNBA, all these leagues, but it really was hard to think about all those athletes and even the high school athletes that weren't able to do their state championships and whatnot. Um, But what about, tell us a little bit about the end of your senior year and um, the transition. I mean, the draft, like how did you feel, what was going through your mind the night of the draft and where were you? Were you at, I'm assuming you were at the draft. I was at the draft. It was in New Jersey. Um, My grandmother and my mom was there. Um, My agent at the time, Here's the crazy thing. Up until my name was called, no, up until the number fifth, number five pick, because um, I ended up going number six, I was scheduled, I was supposed to go to Houston. I knew I was going to Houston. Coach Coach, uh, Coach Chancellor was, they needed a point guard. He was going to draft me. This is this, blah, 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 blah. And he ended up taking Sancho Little. Really? So, yes. Yeah, so I'm not like, a point guard what in the heck is going on? This is this Lola. So when he took Sancho Little, I ended up going to Washington at number six. But I knew for a fact that I was going to be in Houston. Um, that's the only place that I'm not, those are the only ones that was really in contact with me. They was only the ones that was really in contact with my agent. Uh, they was like, are you ready to go number five? This is this. So uh, when Donna Orinda was walking up there, I'm nervous because, you know, I'm excited. I want to be able to um, stay calm in front of my family and stuff like that. But I'm anxiously waiting for my, my name to be called so I can get out of that room and just breathe a little bit because you're, you're holding your breath. You know, it's like one of the biggest moments of your life. You, you're anxiously waiting for it. Uh, something that you worked hard for. Um, so 
I think that the, the season that we had my senior year um, showed that we were still top amongst the uh, the, the colleges that uh, that were out there, and um, we were seen more and more and more from how well we were doing. So I, I was pretty confident and comfortable with uh, knowing that I would be drafted. But that moment is it's a surreal moment, and you kind of just in it, like in that moment, you're not thinking about anything else. And once your name is called, it's a sigh of relief. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I can't imagine what you were feeling when, yeah, Sancho Little's name was called and you were like, wait, what? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you still knew that you were going to be called at some point, but then it was like you didn't know. Yeah, at that point, no, I didn't know. I'm like, oh, my God, because there's a, there was a girl that was invited there and her name did not get called until like 35th or something she was sitting in the green room by herself like I was already at the airport getting ready to board my flight before her name was ever called mm. so at that moment you don't know because there are people there that don't end up getting called right right but they're still invited to go yes because nobody really knows exactly what's going to take place um not everybody that's involved because like I told you I was going Number five, when I didn't go at number five, Washington, who had their eyes set on who they were going to pick, now gets to pick me. Um, So it changes. The draft change. Right. And there's a list. And I, I realized as I've gotten older and I've been in some rooms where the, dra- uh, where the draft was happening and how things function in that office, like there's a list of name on the, a, list, a list of names on the board and possibilities and what ifs. And if this one doesn't happen and this one doesn't happen. So that's why they give that like that little time frame and that window before they call the next name, because mm-hmm. it changes drastically. Yeah. I just can't imagine getting all dressed up. And then sitting through however many hours it takes to do the draft and then walking home empty handed, you know, I mean, it's tough. That's tough. tough. Seriously. Yeah. So what month did the, um, I'm assuming the draft has always taken place during the same month, but it's during your senior year. You're still in class. It it took place uh, in April. The good thing about it is that I had already graduated. Ah, so, and I had another year of eligibility. So um, I was taking classes to stay eligible. So I had already had my degree. So I, I was thankful about that. Uh-huh. So you, but you were at LSU for four. I played three, I played three and a half years of basketball. I officially started playing basketball at LSU um, in 2001. Okay. I finished in 2005, but I graduated with my class in 2004. Okay. I made sure I put in the work to do what I needed to do to make sure that I graduated. Okay. So then you get drafted and you're able to go to training camp right away and you, well, well, I mean, they give you like a week or two to go home, get your stuff situated and stuff like that. And then, yeah, training camp starts and bye-bye college life. Yeah. Which I'm assuming, I mean, I don't know, personally know that many WNBA players, but they either then go back at some point and finish up the end of their career or they go on without their college degree. I'm not sure, but it's kind of. There are some that that do both, but there's also some that when you come to, um, if you're on the cusp of graduating, 
Um, you can finish your work. You talk to your counselors or whatnot, and you let them know that you've been drafted. You have to get to um, training camp. They work with you. Your professors work with you. You can finish online. You submit the work, um, and okay. your um, team will allow you the opportunity to go back and walk across the stage. Okay, that's nice. Yeah, I guess I'm thinking with an antiquated mindset here. It's like, well, yeah, Leslie, everything's online these days. You can continue your classes and, you know, go to practice. You, and You can, but there are some that don't. There are, there are some that, you know, like was tired of school and was like, I'm, I'm good. I'm going to keep going. And there are some that needs to focus on the WNBA and making sure that they make a team. And so that's the only thing that they want to concentrate on. The hard part about that is when basketball is um, taken away from you and you try to get a job, everybody wants to know, do you have a degree? Do you have a master's and stuff like that? And it's hard for people who doesn't because now the means of paying for you to go to college and all that kind of stuff, the window of opportunity have shut. And now you coming out of pocket. And you're you've depending on how long you've been in a WNBA, you come back and you have to start completely over by going back to be a college student and trying to work your way into the real, the real world. It's, it's a catch twenty two. It's kind of difficult to be honest. Mm-hmm. And education is expensive. Yes, I mean, it is. I'm I'm actually almost done getting my master's now, but it definitely is expensive. Oh, I did not know that. And what's your master's in? Master's of Science in entre- and, uh, Organizational Leadership and Entrepreneurship. Hey, that makes two of us more or less. <laughs> That's awesome. When did you start that? Uh, feel, feels like an eternity ago um, <laughs> because the classes go uh, continuously, but maybe close to a year ago. Okay. Yeah. All right. Good for you. Um, okay. So then you, you go off to training camp, you're with the mystics. That's 2005. Yes. Um, you spent, correct me if I'm wrong, 11 years in the WNBA. Yes. Okay. So, um, I mean, you were with the mystics, you were with Los Angeles, you were with the mercury where you won a WNBA championship. Um, ring right here oh you have the ring right there (laughs) i love it oh my goodness yes wow that is a lot of bling it is it is it is (laughs) do you ever wear it anymore not really (laughs) not really but on certain occasions i'll pull it out but not really maybe at like an alumni get together or something or i don't know yeah, Maybe. There's certain things like that, like uh, sporting events or stuff like that, but not very often. Right. Um. So cool. And you were rookie of the year your first year. I was. So I was. not too shabby from a girl that, you know, people thought couldn't do it or was too short. I mean, you really, you just showed them all wrong. Anybody that's in my way between you between me and the basket, you're a problem. I'm like, I don't care how tall you are. And I, and that's been like the story of my life, trying to prove um, that you belong, trying to prove that, uh, you know, that you're better than what they think and all this stuff. But to be honest with you, Leslie, it becomes tiring because you trying to prove something to people that haven't even walked an inch in your shoes. And then at some point you pull over to the side and ask yourself, like, who are you proving it? Who are you trying to prove it to? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Like, do you have to keep proving it? Are you proving it to yourself? Are you proving it just to show them? 
Are you just happy to be where you're at without having to feel like you have to prove yourself all the time? Yeah. And um, it, took, it took me to the end of my career to get to that point, uh, honestly. And it was just like, I'm tired of trying to prove this and try to, tired of trying to prove that every, at the end of the day, everybody knows I'm a competitor. Everybody knows that I'm going to compete. And I'm, was at the time one of the best, uh, probably like top five point guards that there were. So um, I, I think I did well for myself, to be honest. Yeah, well, I, I, I would say so. Um, so, okay, you play 11 years in the WNBA and you were playing overseas. So that was kind of a nonstop grind for 11 years. Um, how do you keep mentally and physically fresh year after year after year? Um, I, I, I don't know the answer to that. And I, I, I played an additional two years. So I did 13 years overseas. Oh, okay. Um, I think you just don't stop. Because the minute you stop is the minute you have to like be like, oh, my God. But you have those moments where you kind of need to pull over to the side. And for me, um, writing was an outlet for me. That's where the, the children's books came in. That's where me becoming an author came came in. I was just like, because you become overwhelmed with doing the same thing and uh, having to, stay, having to say, stay at the same level um, of competitiveness and level of high and competing and all this kind of stuff. And um, you kind of need some type of outlet for me. Mine was writing and it actually mm-hmm. helped. Um, and overseas a lot, uh, helped me to finish books because of the time that we have on on our hand. Um, and I come from a, a, a strong background and a family that's always uplifting. And um, whenever they could, they would come visit me overseas. And for sure, when I came back in the States, whatever state I was in, they came to visit. So that also helped as well. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask you about your books later in the interview, but now that we've brought it up, we can talk about them right now. Um, how many do you have and what are they about? I have four books. Uh, they're children's books. Um, and one of them is actually in the Spanish, uh, has been translated into Spanish. Uh, and it's just about um, a young version of myself. But I use each, each book to tell a story um, and to reach the youth, to give them an idea of um, what it was like growing up and to um, have like responsibilities and chores and stuff like that. Tamika's Choice is um, about making the right choices. Decisions, decisions, decisions is also along the same line. And then I have one that's um, more kid-friendly. Um, that's like meek moments. And it's like, uh, it has more pictures than it does words for uh, maybe like kindergarten first grade kids uh, but there's also there's always lessons in each one of them on doing chores um things being taken away from you if you're not doing what you're supposed to do and in each book there's a word that i know that the kids at that level won't know so it'll force them to have to go and learn um what that word really means mm-hmm. beautiful uh do you remember or well i'm sure you do but the one that's in spanish which one is that Tamika's Choice. Okay. So then in Spanish, it's like, I don't know what the title of that would be, actually. <laughs> I should know how to say that. Your guess is just as good as <laughs> I actually had to get a translator for that. Uh, 
but sometimes they don't even translate everything you know sometimes they use english words in in spanish but okay. uh, the book is definitely to make his choice now oh, okay There's, everything else is in spanish but it's still to make his choice okay good deal um <laughs> So, okay, well, that's great that you had an outlet because I think that's really important. Um, it's nice to be able to come home from practice when you have free time and just do something else because at the end of the day, we're more than just basketball players. Right. Um, and I like to hear that your family was able to come out and visit because that helps big time as well. You played overseas and you started out in Israel, mm-hmm. correct? And yes. then from, from there you went to? I went to Poland. Okay, and then? And then from Poland. um, Russia? No, because I I went to, I had another stint in Israel and I went to France. I stopped in Croatia for a little, small little stint. Then I think I went to Russia and stayed there for like five years. Wow. And then another month or so in Israel, Spain. Yeah, I think. I think that's, I think that's it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a lot of moving around. So tell me what, because you played in Israel, I want to say three or four times. I did. What was it, what was it that you liked so much about the league, about the country, uh, your time there? Honestly, that's where the spiritual side of me comes in. I enjoyed being able to walk on the same grounds as Jesus. I enjoyed the artifact. I, I enjoyed the country. Don't get me wrong. I do. Um, but I enjoyed learning myself there. And it, it may sound weird and crazy, but I um, every year that I went there in different time frames in my life, I can recognize the difference in growth in myself spiritually because I understood things differently by then and I saw things differently um, by then. And uh, I've played there like three or four times, but I've visited there like, I've been a total of nine. Wow. Yeah, like I've I've took I've taken my family there on vacation. Um my mom and aunt went and got baptized in the Jordan River. Um it's just it's a great atmosphere. I, I absolutely enjoy uh the country. I know on TV you see the wars and stuff that's going on, but that's not the experience that I have or mm-hmm. that I got any any time that I was there. Um, so I, I do enjoy uh, the country. By me reading the Bible, I just had questions about certain places and where they were. Uh-huh. Um, but it's kind of, I don't want to say Americanized, but it's easy to get around. Um, you won't have a hard time. People speak both Hebrew and English. Um, the signs are both in Hebrew and in English. There's automatics, not that it matter. I can drive a stick. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's fairly easy to get around places. So. I don't think it would be very difficult for anybody um, who goes in and tries to see the sites and stuff like that is, is, is manageable seriously. Uh huh. Um, I'm just thinking that must've been really emotional watching your mom. And did you say your aunt? Yes. Getting baptized in the Jordan river. I mean, because I've never been there, it just seems like something from a, a fairy tale, you know, like, <laughs> You know, the the Eiffel Tower was like that for me for a long time until I finally went to Paris and I saw it with my own two eyes. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm here. This really exists. But the whole (laughs) the whole Israel, the whole land, everything just seems it's not tangible for me. I can't I can't like imagine it because I've never been there. Um, 
but it's got so much history. And to be able to be there and see your mom and your aunt doing that must have been surreal. It actually was. And the good thing about it is I didn't I didn't miss the moment of seeing their reaction because I had already gotten I've already I had already gotten to see the sights before I I took them. So okay. it was easy for me to go and say, well, we, we probably should go see this and go see that. So when I took them around to, to be able to see um, how they felt and the look on it. And to this day, I promise you, I don't think that it's really registered to them um, fully because sometimes you, you're taking it in and it's good, but it's, you don't really grasp everything until you can sit back and really think about it. Um, so I, it was, it's a great feeling. Um and they, the questions that they had, I was thankful that I was able to ask, um, and they enjoy themselves. So that was uh-huh. beautiful. Um, so then in comparison to Israel, Poland and Russia must be on like the opposite spectrum as far as climate, culture, I mean, everything, right? <laughs> You're absolutely right. But Poland and Russia are two different places as well. Um, if both places were co- was cold, I don't think that um, Poland was as cold as Russia. Um, but I enjoy both of them very much. Um, and they're definitely different experiences. Going in as an American in different countries, um, a lot of people have their own perception of what an American is. And mm-hmm. some of it is based on TV. Poland, when I was in Poland, I was a lot younger. And it was it was it wasn't bad because um, by that the team that I was on was like the number two team in the country, and some of the players were uh, WNBA players, so that absolutely helped. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it was cool. The culture was cool. Anywhere you go, you have to break kind of like break the ice, um, but the game itself helps that, mm-hmm. um, and it also helps to learn who you are as a person. Russia was a lot different. Um, and you were there for five years, you said? Were you on the same team every year or were you moving around? In Kursk for three and I played in Orenburg for two. Okay. Yes. So um, it was a it was a little different. It definitely was because in my opinion, like it's not it's not only cold there, it's freezing. But the people, if they don't know you, they're absolutely cold and they're looking at you like why are you here? Uh-huh. So that part was a little different. Plus there's, there wasn't very many African-Americans. <laughs> so that's another thing. So the staring contest was kind of like a bit weird at first. Yeah. That's what I've heard from other players um, that have been over in Russia. And I really can't fathom what it must've felt like being in your shoes. But then, you know, once like I say, you start playing and they realize that uh, your gift is bringing a lot of excitement to the city where you are. Um, they start to understand why you're there. And those looks then go from, you know, certain stairs to at least a nod or a high or, you know, just they're on a basketball team. Uh-huh. It became okay, I guess. What but I will say that the, the the organizations did a really good job of making sure that we were safe and making sure that we were as comfortable as possible. Good. Um, what was the travel like in Russia? Because it's a massive. Oh, my God. I use I promise you, you use every form of transportation except for a motorcycle. <laughs> I would get picked up from a car in the drive. I would get picked up by a car for, for, for the, the driver to bring us to the train station. 
get on a train, get off the train and get on a bus. That's going to take us to the airport to get on the plane, <laughs> getting off of the plane to getting back on the bus. And it's like you, you use every, almost every form of transportation, literally. Mm-hmm. You have to give yourself like more than 24 hours just to get to the game. You probably were there either the day before or two days before. You're you're definitely not traveling anywhere in one day. No, we would leave. When I was in Kirsten, it was so bad. Like the, the travel was so brutal. We would leave um, like two days before and we would leave in the middle of the night to catch a train. We would be on the train for eight hours, but you could sleep on the train. So we would travel through the middle of the night, um, get off the train, drive like probably two hours in traffic to get to the airport to catch like a four hour flight to the city that you need to get to. And, you know, um, by the time you get to the city, it's the day before the game. And off uh, when you got off, when you got off the plane on the bus, you get to the hotel, you drop your stuff. Now you got to go have a little light walkthrough or eat. And then you go back and you rest. And the next day it's time to play. Uh huh. Which all that traveling really kind of cuts into practice time as well. Not to a certain to... extent, but they're definitely going to find time for <laughs> you to practice. <laughs> but then you have to take that whole trip back home. It's like, yes, that's like all. half your week. Pretty much, pretty much. Now, I'll tell you, like, the travel was, was brutal. But as much time as you spend with your teammates, you're definitely going to get to learn about them because you, you, you're everywhere with them. So kind of on a shoot off from that, I'm wondering all those years playing overseas, all the different people you played with, all the different teammates you had. Um, how do you think all those years have contributed to the growth and to who Tamika Johnson is now? Uh, I think that it absolutely helped me um, transform overall. Um, being in those other countries helped me to become open-minded, um, helped me to understand a different way other than the way that we was taught here in America. It helped me to appreciate people. It, it helped me to have a better appreciation for uh, different cultures. Um, but I will say that it helped me overall as a person because for some reason, I cannot tell you why or how, I knew going into other countries that I was probably going to only be the only representation of American that some people ever saw. Mm-hmm. So um, I wanted them to know that things that was on TV wasn't how all Americans were. The depiction that they saw wasn't how I was. Um, and despite of everything that's going on and take place in America and all this kind of stuff, we're still human beings. And it it helped me to, to grow and understand that uh, there's so much more to life than what some t- that what most people see on an everyday basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I love that you were that example for a lot of people, um, because I feel I feel in the beginning I felt the same way, um, and I'm just glad that people that don't live in the U.S. have a positive view of somebody that is American, um, and we're not all the same. <laughs> yes, because it can definitely be hard, especially with TV. Yeah stereotypes and just generalizations and that makes me happy to know that you you touched the lives of a lot of people over the last 13 years um playing i was gonna ask you as well where do you think was the hardest place to play out of all those different countries or leagues um i mean obviously like euro league would have been really competitive but just as far as maybe quality of life like what 
Russia was tough because it was so cold. It was mm-hmm. so cold. It was tough. But Leslie, you know, after a while, you learn to adapt. And you understand that you're doing things for the reasons that you're doing them. You're getting paid to do a job, and that's what it becomes. And you try to make the best of it. And to be honest with you, I think I would do it all over again. It was probably cool. I think I had my heater on for seven months in Russia. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a little different from Louisiana. Oh, my God. A little. Jesus. It's The snow was unreal. I, I still enjoyed it. So uh, my experiences wasn't as bad. Like I didn't have very many harsh environments. And like I said, I played for some pretty good organizations where they tried to do everything in their power to make sure that we were as comfortable as possible. So I, I, I can't speak for everybody, but in that aspect, I was really fortunate. Did you ever have problems or a story behind like getting visas and being able to be legal in places? Or was that all taken care of you via your agent? It was taking place, uh, taken care of via our, our agent. If there was any problems with visas or whatnot, the team was always on top of it. If it was anywhere that we had to go and make sure that it was and our team was on top of it and our coaches was on top of it. Um, I think I had maybe one incident where my visa was about to expire and we had to go to another country to make sure that it got taken care of because of something was closed off in the country that um, we were in. Um, but other than that, I didn't have very many problems with it. Okay, good deal. Um, and then I was wondering, as a point guard, it's a different experience going overseas than it is as a post player because you're the voice you're the voice on the floor and you're like the coach's right hand woman out there on the court um how was that experience for you a language barriers b like getting the team together and c being on the same page as your coach because i'm sure you've played for coaches that maybe you don't see eye to eye with or you don't necessarily agree with how do you manage that as an american playing overseas well, I appreciated every coach that I had, but I went in with the um, with the mindset of trying to understand my teammates and those that were in a position of leadership uh, before I got there, and that actually helped with them not feeling in feeling as though I was trying to come in and take over. Um, so the ones that I knew were leaders and the ones that I knew spoke the language and stuff like that. I would speak with the coaches, but then I would also speak with my teammates and try to get a better understanding of their mindset from their culture and what was needed and how can I help. And I tried to go in with that mindset everywhere because again, a lot of people think Americans are barbaric and that we're going to come in and just try and tell you what to do and how to do it and all this kind of stuff. And I, I totally took a different approach of just going to my teammates and asking them, how can I help? What is it that I can do? What is it that's needed? And when I was able to do that, um, then I was able to communicate with the coaches. Uh, if I didn't have one that spoke English, then I would talk to, I would bring my translator, but um, I needed to be on the same page with the people that I was going to be on the floor with first mm-hmm. and so I took that approach in it it actually helped it, it actually helped me tremendously yeah did you have a translator like a personal translator or just there was one on the team that you were playing for no we had personal translators really <laughs> one of us needed something different so yeah we would have a, a personal translator and if it wasn't if it wasn't very many um foreigners on the team then we would have we would share one Okay, this was in Russia or this was in various places? This was in Russia for sure. Um, 
in Poland, we had a translator. Um, but again, like like you, Leslie, I kind of got on some of the people nerves by asking what they saying. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like that. So well, you like to know. Yeah, but when it came down to like the business stuff or whatnot, I wouldn't use my teammates. I would definitely go to my translator or contact my agent. Uh huh. Um. Okay. Another question: What do you think are the differences, or what have you seen are the differences between the Euro- the American system, and I want to say the European system, but you played in Israel and Russia, um, not necessarily Europe. But as far as like the development and the growth of players. Um, and this podcast is called another season in the books, which talks about, you know, athletes who are studying at the same time as playing just the differences between the systems and the clubs that you've played for and how you're, um, accustomed to doing things back home. I would say that, uh, at home, if you have a sport, you're channeling all that energy to that sport. You are um, practicing, you're trying to find the best trainer, you're trying to stay, you're trying to have this edge and stuff like that. And that's not to say that that's not what's going on in other countries. I just found that in other countries, um, players are more well-rounded in other sports as well. Hmm. Um, They played soccer, you know, they played other sports that didn't force them to burn out of one sport. Um, and I think that's something that um, many of us should do here because there's times where kids get burned out. Um, and as as I'm seeing now, there's more and more parents that's getting involved and, you know, kind of like, we have to do this, we have to do this, we have to do this. And it takes the fun away from the kid at an, at an early age. Um, and then you just want to, the kid who could be talented, it could be the next whomever, gets burned out and it's like, I don't want to do that anymore. Um, I think allowing the kids to enjoy the game and not live, not live vicariously through the kids or whatnot, where it become a lot of pressure or it becomes a job at an early age is something that's happening and taking place in America. What about like the young, the youngest person that you've ever played with? I'm sure on some of your teams, you probably had some young women or some young girls on your teams. And they were, go ahead. They were like still in high school, or they were in college, and they're going to practice in the morning, going to practice in the evening. Were they able to keep up their studies? They were, um, because there were many of us that had walked that path already. So when we knew that they were in school and stuff like that, it's like, listen, man, you got work you need to do. Um, or they would say, I would love to come, or I would love to do this, but I have a homework assignment that has to be turned in and stuff like that. And we understand it because for the most part, many of us have been there. Um, so coming in, the coaching staff would know that this one is still in school and we have to do this and we have to do it. And it is a job. Don't get me wrong. It becomes a job and nobody's going to hold your hand and stuff like that. And then there's the people that you left um, at, at school that constantly calls like your counselors like you know did you were you able to turn in this assignment um uh if you need more time you can contact this person and let us know how we really want you to be able to focus on making the team but you need to do the work and stuff like that so it's a team full of people that's helping you to um to accomplish your goals and you're definitely not doing it alone um but you surround yourself with the right people and you can get it done okay interesting to to just hear that because 
my only experience basically is Spain and one year in Switzerland. Um, mm -hmm. But it's very difficult for athletes to get their college degree while playing because it's not like the States, you know, where it's like the two go hand in hand. Um, and I give a lot of credit to players that are figuring out and getting it done while playing in Europe or Russia or Israel, wherever they are. Um, it's different. I do have a teammate uh, who was doing it and they went a long time. And then after they finished, it was like, well, I kind of want to get this degree and I kind of want to get this degree. And right now I think she's maybe 33, about to be 34. And she just got a master's and now she's like, well, I think I need a degree in this because she don't feel as though she has enough. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> I applaud you. Cause after I finished this master's, somebody asked me about a PhD. I was like, what? I <laughs> that much school. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah. It's nice to have your free time a little bit. Um, what advice would you give college grads, um, or even WNBA rookies who are thinking about, you know, embarking on their career overseas in the off season, um, just as, you know, how, how to be successful overseas and how to be able to have longevity like you did. Um, my advice it would come as this is a few things that I would say. I would tell them to enjoy the experience, but understand that you're there to do a job. Understand that you're a representation of a country that many people haven't been to. Um, don't do anything in one country that you wouldn't do in your own country. Make sure that you're giving your, your best effort. Um, know that even though you plan in the country that you're going to, there's other countries that's watching um, to see if you can if they can come in, take you and add you to their roster later on down the road or anything of that sort, just always be the best, the best version of yourself because at the end of the day, you are a walking brand and you're being watched and deter the, it determines you, you are the determining factor of how you perceive. Mm -hmm. And I would tell them, I was like, listen, you only get one first impression and perception is reality. Sure. Sure. But I will tell them to enjoy themselves. And yeah. bask in the moment and don't go over, don't go overseas saying, oh, we don't do this at this place. And understand that you're in other people's culture and try to adapt to the things that they're doing. Um, what about coming from a division one program, the resources that you have, the clothes that you have, the help, the medical attention, everything that goes into a division one program, what can they expect when they go overseas? Oh, the total opposite sometimes. <laughs> They can expect the total opposite. That's why they need to learn how to adjust. Um, I will tell them to get with their trainers before they leave. Is if it's anything that they may possibly need, think that they may need from their trainer, they should probably get it before they leave. Um, bring them some medicine. Bring. I will tell them to get a care package. A care package from their trainer. Um, and understand that they're gonna learn how to do things on their own that they didn't think that they would have to. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, during your years overseas, did you ever have a serious injury? Uh, I did. I um, tore some ligaments in my ankle in the game. The crazy thing about it is, Leslie, I'm a little crazy. We needed to we, we needed to finish fourth. And we were playing um, <laughs> in the round where it was the determining factor of us finish, finishing third or fourth. Right. Mm -hmm. So we were in fourth place. If we lost to the fifth place team, we were definitely going to be out. We played game one um, and we win. And it's the best two out of three. 
I go up and literally the girl pushed me out the air and I come down and I land awkward. Like my ankle is touching the floor and I am screaming. I can barely walk. My ankle is as big as a tennis ball. And I played the next day. I don't know how, don't ask me. (laughs) And I couldn't put my shoe on or whatnot. And it just felt like it wouldn't give. So I went in with my translator and I asked, um, I asked the, the trainer to just yank it and pull it just for me to get a little relief, tape it, put something on it. But because the game was important and I am in there screaming, the translator is about to cry. I'm biting down on the, the towel and all this kind of stuff. The crazy, the most absurd thing. I don't know if it was adre- adrenaline or what. I go in and we play and they were like, we're going to press her the entire time. There's no way that she can play. And I did. And we end up winning by like 50. Wow. And then we go and play for like the third place team and I can't walk. I tried. I was just like, oh, <laughs> I'm just like, it's, he was like, no problem. You did what you needed to do. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And so I did, I ended up rupturing uh, a few ligaments in, in my ankle. So I had to do a little therapy, but the most, the, I did most of my therapy when I got back to America and uh, with the trainers and stuff that I had. Okay. Cause I was going to ask you just what's, the, what's been your experience with the medical treatment that you've received overseas? In certain places, it was really, really good. And in this, and it's the best version of them. And I had to understand that. Um, but you also learn to bring some stuff with you. Like I would bring STEM machines and any machines that I had that I knew would be beneficial to me. Um, not because I didn't think that they knew exactly what they they needed to do, but it wasn't what I was used to getting done. Mm-hmm. And, um, <clears throat> but they they tried their best to do whatever it is that needs to be done and get us the best possible doctors that they have. So I, I was pretty fortunate, Les. I really was. Mm-hmm. Well, and then you're you're not mentioning one injury that I feel like was more um, <laughs> cru- crucial or more significant than tearing ligaments in your ankle. Ah, yes, 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 yes. My Achilles. Well, you was my roommate for that. (laughs) I will never forget the day that you, I think you got off your crutches and I got on my crutches. Um, Yes, it was absolutely absurd. (laughs) Everybody that's listening, we were roommates and we we traded places. I turned in my crutches and Leslie decided to get some for herself. Um, Two totally different injuries, but yes, that... um, my Achilles injury uh, kind of changed the perspective of me, my eating. Um, I stopped eating meat when I left Spain. Did you? I did. So it's been about two years and I, I just only seafood, like fish and shrimp and stuff like that. I Almost about two years now, I haven't really eaten any kind of meat. Um, and I know that the food here from Louisiana, the food is so heavy and it's so good and it's well seasoned and I couldn't run. So... Um, I was not about to get fat. Like I had two goals my <laughs> to get my Achilles back to where I can feel like my normal self again and to not get fat and gain weight. That's so tough, man. It, it definitely was, but I will say in Spain, um, I had some good, good, good help. I did. Um, the trainers was good. He did everything that he could in, in, in his capacity to make sure that, you know, it was healing well. The doctors were, were great. The physical therapist was was great for that time frame that I was there. And then when I came home, I got with my trainers. I, I went back to LSU. 
and God with my trainers there. And um, I don't have very many problems with it. I still train. I, I work out. Um, there's some soreness, but it's from me just like overuse and not really getting a massage or work done. But other than that, um, mm -hmm. I'm pretty good. But you're right. That is by far the toughest injury that I had. I had to learn how to walk all over again. I had to learn how to jump. Like it was challenging to jump over a ruler that was laying flat on the ground. You don't realize how important an Achilles is until you don't have one. Right. And mentally too. Thanks uh, for bringing it up. <laughs> well, for I, I like to touch on this just a little bit because there are situations and countries where players might not receive the best medical care and you have to be smart and you you have to listen to the doctors but you also have to do what you feel like is best for you but my experience in Spain has been has been very good as far as um, medical treatment has gone so I like to let you know Americans know that as well because I know my mom sometimes she's particular and she's doubting you know well what are they doing and this and that and we have this tendency to think that in the United States we do everything the best and um, or have the best of everything or whatever it is but just because people do it differently doesn't mean it's not really great um, this is true and I, I, tell, I don't mean to cut you off um, in all my years I had never had surgery in another country if something happened to me I was going home it, it doesn't matter. Um, I need to be around, especially if it's something that's surgical. I need to be around family. I need to be around friends. I need to be in a comfort zone. I am so ecstatic that I had my surgery done in Spain. My doctors were amazing. Um, she did a great, great job. Uh, my, my scar healed perfectly. And oddly enough, I came home and there was another girl in America at LSU that had and a gymnast that had tore her Achilles. And if you see her scar and how it looks, they were amazed at how well mine looked and how well it was healing and the, the job that was done on it. And we were in the training room at the same time. Like they were taking pictures of it. Like, can we take a picture of it just to show her like this is unbelievable and how how well it looks and this is this. So I'm I'm very thankful that um I got it done there and it was done amazingly. But I will say that my, my agent um, was on top of it. They re researched every hospital. There were some professional soccer players that um, had it done. And we knew that the doctor that was doing it knew what she was doing. Also, um, it helped that some of the, it helped me knowing that Margasol, Paul Gasol, a basketball players and stuff that Spain was a it was a sports world so um, especially with the soccer teams and the soccer players and stuff like that it helped me and brought me comfort knowing that they've already taken care of many of these athletes um, I'm pretty sure it's going to be the same for me mm -hmm. yeah I, I didn't think about that but that's a good point but um yeah, great medical care, great physical therapy afterwards. Kind of changing uh, paths a little bit here. I'm curious to talk a little bit about what you're doing now and how all of your years overseas and all of your experience have now contributed to what um, you've been up to the last. Have you now been co coaching high school for two years a or year. one? Full year? No, 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 just one. Lord one full year. Okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> High school is not anything that we remember, not even close. Um, but it was really good for me to be able to pour into um, the kids, especially those that are receptive to it. But the kids today, 
think that there's not very many people that can tell them anything. So it was really interesting for me because, you know, I can still play. So, of course, I have some that's, you know, oh, you can't do this and this is this. And they want to bully other people. Now, as small as I am, I don't really like bullies. I don't care. <laughs> so I would take the whistle off and be like, all right, you want to do this to them? I'm going to do it to you. And they would be like, no, coach, don't do it. No, 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 I'm not your coach right now. I'm, I'm a competitor like you. So it was some valuable lessons that I had to teach and I had to get on the floor and I had to, some people had to have some humble pie. Um, but overall, it was a, a great experience to be able to see that I could do it. You know, like the passion that I have for kids, the enjoyment that I get for giving back and wanting to pour into the future. Um, it was, it was really fun. It was challenging. It was more challenging working with adults <laughs> than it was the kids. To be honest, what like your assistant coaches or the no, athletic the director? Like, yeah, like the administration of a, of a high school administration. You have to understand, like, um, not very many of them have done some of the things that we as basketball players are able to do. So the the school system and the life, and I, I can't say that it's everywhere. It's just it's just messy. And as a competitive athlete that don't really care about things that don't involve us, it's kind of like taxing to see that this is what people's everyday life is um and that doesn't mean that it's wrong it's just what they know and so that kind of that part there was kind of uh different in a in a lot of areas in a lot of ways for me but overall it was a good experience um I had I had a good group of kids um I would love to be able to get into the college ranks though so we'll see how that goes well, those girls were extremely fortunate and lucky to be able to soak up your knowledge and your personality and just everything for a whole year. I mean, really, what a treat. You know what? I don't think that they will understand it until they're away from me. And I, we've, we've been there. Um, our coaches would tell us something and we'd be like, man, what are they talking about? And then when we get away from them, it's like, oh, this is what they meant. Oh, this, and then you'll get, we all went back and was like, man, it's nothing like how it was for this. And this is this. So um, even knowing my background and stuff like that, it wasn't easy to get those kids to buy in. As much as everybody would say that they were lucky to have me and learn from me, I've had conversations with them where I was frustrated because we would go other places. And other coaches would be like, before you leave, I don't know if I'll ever have an, another opportunity. Would you be willing to speak to my kids? And I had to tell my own kids, I was like, we go places and people ask me to talk to their kids. Y'all have me every day and y'all won't even listen to the things that I'm saying. Hmm. And it wasn't until, you know, the pandemic, actually, that I started getting a lot of phone calls from them telling me that they missed me. And, you know, uh, they can't believe that it's over and this is this and all this kind of stuff. So you don't you don't know it until it's taken away from you. We were talking before. I mean, I feel like there's just lots of layers to meet to Tamika Johnson, you know, the basketball player, the author, uh, the high school coach. Do you still do? Are you still active with your foundation? I am. I am. It's very important. It's been I hadn't been able to do the things that we that I wanted to do because of you know, COVID-19 and not being in a huge atmosphere. So it's not really many events that we can host um, with the foundation right now. But that's another thing that's near and dear. Um, the Alzheimer's uh, event to honor Coach Gunner, uh, feeding the homeless for Thanksgiving and making sure that they have a meal, trying to do things at Christmas, uh, just trying to instill hope in every way possible. Anybody want to donate or get involved, heavenopenspeopleseyes.org is the website. Um, heaven opens people's eyes h-o-p-e hope mm -hmm. 
Um, okay. Coming to the end of the interview, I have just some random questions for you. Um, <laughs> what is your Jersey number and why? My Jersey number is number two. Um, no real thing to was it. I was number 20 when I was in high school. It got retired. Uh, when I got to college, somebody had it. So I just took the first number from my <laughs> my retired jersey. And it's been the same number ever since. Okay. Well, congratulations. I didn't know that your high school jersey was retired. <laughs> Thank you. And maybe your college one will be too someday. Who knows? Maybe. We'll see. We'll see. Simone Augustus was at LSU while you were there too, right? Yes. She's two busy. years younger, maybe? Yes, she is. Okay. Yeah, we love her in Minnesota, you know. I'm sure. <laughs> uh, great excitement to the city. Uh-huh. Um, any food products that you brought over with you overseas that you knew you wouldn't be able to buy over there? Well, again, I'm from Louisiana, so our seasoning is like none other. So it would definitely be Louisiana seasoning. <laughs> Louisiana seasoning. That's what it's called. No, it's like seasonal... If I wanted to ball crawfish, it would be like uh, some crab ball, some stuff like that. Like our seasoning is like none other. So it would just be Louis- like some, some, some different types of seasoning from Louisiana. Okay. Um, what is your go-to move or what was your go-to move on the court? Like your bread and butter, clocks running down, what would you do? <laughs> In and out. <laughs> A running start. In and out to get to the spot, make them bite a little bit, get to where I need to get to either get a shot off, get to the goal, uh, set somebody else up for the right pass. Uh huh. Explosive, uh, penetrator to the basket, basically, in gotcha. a nutshell. Yeah. <laughs> um, any favorite words you learned in different countries? Was there any like word that you thought was cool, sounded different, that you enjoyed learning? Um, I'm just curious. <laughs> um, I learned a few words, but I think learning how to say thank you and the way people say hello and goodbye, the, the respectful words are way more important to me. So uh, just knowing the different, the difference, uh, hellos, goodbyes, how you doing was that. And do not ask me to say all of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I'm thinking, how do you uh, greet someone like in Russia, in Poland, in Spain, you do the two kisses in Russia. Do they, I'm assuming they do not kiss. Like previous. Hello. Like that's it. You just say hi. Like there's times where you, you, you can, you can greet with a, with a kiss in, in France. Um, in France, it's definitely the kissing and stuff like that. Um, everybody else is just hi, hello stuff. I don't know. They try to, they try to respect your, your space a little bit. Right. Cause Americans tend to be a little like you're up in my grill. Like, why are you getting so close? Yeah. Just a little bit. Um, and then last two, I'm sure you've been answered. You've been asked these many times before, but who was the toughest point guard for you to defend during your stint in the WNBA? I mean, a lot of players were probably say that you were the toughest one to defend, but when you had to defend someone, was there anybody that you were like, Oof, I gotta, I gotta work tonight. Um, Sue Bird was tough because she came off of a lot of screens. Lindsay Whalen was tough. Yeah. Because not only did she come off of screens, um, Whalen was was a bigger guard and she used her body phenomenally. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of tough guards because you know at that level everybody's everybody there can play. But I would say Sue and Lindsay were probably two of the 
tougher one. Well, I'd love to see you get into college coaching because obviously Lindsay is coaching at the University of Minnesota. And every time I see former players getting back into coaching, I just think it's so great. And these players are so fortunate. And I really hope that they realize that. But yeah. And then who would you say was your best screener? Like who who would you be like, I want her pick and pick and roll with me all day long? In a WBA or in college or in both? Uh, you can do both if you want. Um, in college, it started out as Latrina White, who did a little stint in WNBA, but of course it transformed into Sylvia Files. Okay. Um, it's not going to be, it's crazy that you're asking me this or whatnot, but it will probably, that's tough. That's, that's a tough one in the WNBA. <laughs> It really is because all of us did what we needed to do. Like I can say Diana Taurasi, if they wanted you to get open, she was getting open. Um, Lisa would set a mean screen. Um, Lisa Leslie? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, Taj McWilliams. I don't there's there that one there is tough in the WNBA because there are a lot of people that will do what needs to be Camille Little. Now Camille Little will get you open. <laughs> now that's one person that would definitely get you open. That was like Screening became her thing, especially in Seattle. So Camille was one that would get you open. Atlanta Lawkins, there's there's a lot of people that yeah. either were going to get open or you didn't want them to screen you at all because you were going to fill it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just curious because as a point guard, you know, that's that's an important part of the game, having a good post player who can set a really good screen. But like you said, in the WNBA, they should all be very capable of that. But um, I don't know. I just think of Janelle McCarvel. Uh, setting big J-Mac screens of being a big body, you know. J Mac is definitely going to get you open, and I, I, I played with her in Turkey. I didn't name. Turkey. Oh, you did. With her in Turkey, yes. Okay, Meek. I just want to thank you so much for your time, and it's such a pleasure being able to just throw a lot of questions at you, hear your wisdom, um, and just learn from your experience. And I really hope that some youth out there are going to listen to this and learn um, learn from what you've been through. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And I appreciate you doing this podcast. It's awesome. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Leslie, it was good seeing you as well. A small window into the athletic and academic lives of Tamika Johnson. Lives where 100% effort was the norm and anything else wasn't acceptable. I was blessed with the opportunity to live with Tamika during my last season in Logroño, and I can honestly say that she is one of those rare people who leave their mark, both on and off the court. Her leadership was felt immediately. She always seemed to have the right thing to say, and she always said it in a tone that was non-judgmental. Everyone knew she valued the group as a whole and wanted the best for the team. Her story is one for remembering and sharing, and I encourage you to look into buying one of her children's books. If you enjoyed this week's podcast, do me a favor by rating the show or by leaving a comment. Your support means a lot and will help get the word out to future listeners. And lastly, if you're thinking about pursuing a basketball career overseas and have questions, doubts, or are in need of a representative, send a note my way. I work with a company called Overtime Sports, and we'd be happy to help you out. You can reach me at the email address of info at otimesports.com. And that's all for this week. Thank you for listening to another season in the books. I'm Leslie Knight, wishing you a safe and healthy week.